0: Hello, and welcome once again to Horror Tales. Before we begin, can I just ask you to like and share these videos and uh, help gain some exposure for our artists that very kindly uh, contribute the works to the show. In this episode, we uh, meet a loving family whose lives are turned upside down by a callous incident which leads to an unfortunate series of events. It is my pleasure to bring you A Dish by of Cold written by Steve Knight. Life, your life, your world. Someone once described life as, when you've heard the sound of horses hooves, but all you get are zebras. You grew up as a young child, just seeing life from the view of a child, innocent, exciting. You think your pretense is the real world. You can park those toy cars in the toy garage, without charge. Teddy will save you from all the bad things in the darkness. Your parents warn you not to talk to strangers, play with fire as it will burn, wear your coat otherwise you will always get cold, and respect your elders. Life Stephen's life, and his world, changed when he was three years old. He had a good family, mum, dad, brother David, sisters Vicky and Rachel, as well as a wealth of close aunties and uncles. Over the next few years his world would fall apart. He was talking to strangers, playing with fire, Forgetting that coat, it did not care at anyone younger or older. Life had destroyed his world. Now people handle life in different ways. Some can shrug off their problems with a shrug of the shoulders. Their problems almost seem surreal to them, as though they had crashed the car, but no one was seriously injured. You can always buy another car, but you cannot buy another life, and that is the way they look at it. Not a stressful thought in their heads. Some people plough themselves into their jobs, career-minded, and blank out the everyday life problems as though they were living in another world. Humans look at these type of people and wish for the same life trait, but it never comes to them. Life has not chosen them for that easy life they so yearn. Life is what you make it, they say. No life is shaped for you. Do your parents have good jobs, money, their own house, a good car, lots of friends that they do not find it hard to socialise with, family that they can rely on, and generally an easy going home life? You could have all these things but life can change that for you with one bad turn. You could lose your job, lose your house, crash the car, have no friends, family could disown you, and your home life could be full of arguments. Life can change, and often does. It did for Stephen in 1969. There was a painful screaming sound coming from the direction of the bottom of the stairs. Stephen was three years old, coming up for four. His mother had told him not to play in the stairs, the temptation was always there, because his toy box was in the alcove under the stairs, full of his toy cars. He loved his toy cars, and his garage that his brother David had bought him for Christmas. David had a newspaper delivery job at the age of 14 with a local news agent, and had saved some of the money from that each week with the Christmas club in order that he could buy his little brother a nice present. Katie picked the toddler up and tried to calm his crying. What have you done, baby? she asked, as the youngster pointed to his knee, then his arm. Then his head. It hurts in all those places, does it? She looked at all three just in case, but noticed there was no actual damage. I don't know. What are we going to do with you? Biscuit? Ah, yes. A biscuit always makes it better, she replied heading towards the kitchen cupboard. Stephen indicated that he wanted to get down as soon as he had the treat, and he ran off in the direction of his cars as his mother lured him. Don't get too many cars out, she shouted. It's bedtime soon. No... Katie always knew that this answer was coming. Stephen was a uh, awake until he dropped toddler, and she had often found him asleep by his toy box, or in the dog basket with the dog, but she would soon put him to bed and have the rest from her daily routine. Husband Michael was down at the labour club playing dominoes. The girls were out with their boyfriends and David was at work. He now had a part-time evening job at Bushredo and Ernst Settle. Yes, she thought to herself. Coffee, feed up, and Corrie. Suddenly, she was startled by a knocking on the front door. Who could that be, she thought. She was not expecting anyone. Bloody neighbours again. She opened the door to find two police officers stood on the doorstep. Mrs Bishop asked the officer with three stripes on his lapels. Yes, that's right, she replied with an inquisitive frown on her face. The two officers did not wait for an invite, but stepped inside. Do you have a son, David? Continued the sergeant. Yes, said Katie, nodding. Oh no, please, no. She leaned her back against the wall and started to think the worst. Why else would two officers turn up at her doorstep? David was involved in an accident in Tamara Way earlier, Mrs. Bishop. He's at Freedoms Field Hospital, in the emergency department right now. Katie removed her hands from her mouth and nose. Was it a bad accident? From what we can make out, your son is in a bad way, but we'll let the doctor tell you. We can take you there if you'd like to get your coat. He looked at Stephen. Have you got anyone that could look after the boy? Kitty paused. As though she was not hearing anybody but only her own thoughts. What? She looked up. The boy. Yes, she said. My daughter's over at number 24, at her boyfriend's. Sergeant Mercer nodded to the constable, who disappeared out the front door to fetch Rachel, Katie's daughter. What about your husband, Mrs. Bishop? Is he in? Katie was already putting her coat on. A big, thick, heavy sheepwheel coat. She felt the cold. She often joked with Stephen that she had taken all her blood out when she was born and that is why she was always cold. Although she did not understand. No, he's down at the labour club. That's okay, we'll get another police car to go and pick him up. The sergeant noticed P.C. Borrow coming across the road, closely followed by Rachel, Stephen's sister. Concerned, Rachel went right into her mother's open arms. Mum, what's happened? All I know is that David's been in an accident, Katie replied, with some concern in her strained voice. I'm going up to the hospital now. I need you to take care of the little one. Rachel started to walk down the steps towards the toddler. Keep me informed, mum. Katie and the two police officers got in the waiting police car, and moments later it sped away up the street. The journey seemed so long to her. It was four miles, but it could have been at the end of the country for the time it was taking. She looked out the window all the way, although she did not see anything because her mind was imagining just what she was going to see when she arrived at the hospital. Suddenly the radio burst into life. 3-6 The junior officer was driving the police car, so Sergeant Mercer picked up the handset. Yes, 3-6, go ahead. Just to confirm that we have picked up Mr Bishop from Horniglow Label Club, as requested. This was the first thing Kitty had heard during the journey so far, as Sergeant Mercer looked behind him towards the lady, and then further out the back window of the car. Thank you, Sierra One, out. He looked at his driver. They can't be that far behind us then. That's what I was thinking, answered P.C. Barlow, taking a quick glance in his rear-view mirror. Suddenly the journey seemed to go that little bit quicker as Katie realised she was going to be joined by Michael at the hospital and not have to face whatever she had to face there alone. Not that Michael was a strong one in the relationship. He liked the quiet life, especially on Saturday afternoons when he would have put his feet up, have a glass of rum and a cigar and watch World of Sport on the television, in between reading his newspaper. Katie did not like sport. So she used to go into Plymouth City Centre to do the weekly shopping in the market and at the co-op food section at Derry's Cross. It had come to be a bit of a Saturday ritual. She had also picked up the shopping for her auntie V and a couple of the elderly neighbours nearby and would deliver that to them before she made the journey home, usually around 5.30pm just as the sport was finishing and then she would actually get a conversation out of Michael. The police car came to a halt. Sergeant Mercer jumped out and rushed back to open the door for his lady passenger, as the locks were on the doors to prevent prisoners escaping. Another police car, this one with the flashing blue light, came in behind him. And the same courtesy was extended to Katie's husband as the PC opened the back door. Katie, darling, Michael said as he embraced her, increasing the tension of the cuddle as she burst into tears. He looked at Sergeant Mercer and then asked, Is he in there, in any? His head nodded in the direction of the entrance. Yes, that's where we last saw him. If you'd like to come in, I will check. Katie and Michael watched Sergeant Mercer talk to the receptionists, and then one of the nurses walked around. Hello there. Katie was first to speak. Our son, David Bishop, we have been told he's here by the police. Yes, replied the nurse. I'll let the doctor explain. If you'd like to come this way, I will show you to a private room. As they walked with the nurse, Sergeant Mercer perked up. I'll leave you to it. If there's anything I can do, let me know, but I'd probably need to speak to you both again at some point in any case. Yes, Michael replied, thank you. He watched the two officers walk back down towards the reception area and then continued following the nurse, who opened the door to the left of both of him and Katie. I will get the doctor for you. When can we see my son? Katie asked tearfully. She had sat down on a chair instantly, merely to ensure that she did not fall with shock or anguish. She was only a small lady, all four foot nine and a half inches of her, of which she used to remind people regularly. Don't forget the half. Her husband was quite the opposite. In fact, family members used to say they were chalk and cheese, because he was 6 foot 2 inches. He also liked to drink at weekends and midweek when he was playing dominoes, whereas Kelly, an ex-nurse herself, did not touch a drop. I will let the doctor explain, the nurse said. I'll be right back. He closed the door behind her and then walked down the corridor towards the many cubicles, all surrounded by curtains and the many medical staff going to and fro and behind them. Michael watched the nurse and her movements, and noticed her talking to a man in a white coat, with the stethoscope hanging on either side of his neck. I think he must be the doctor. He appears to be interested in what the nurse has to say. Katie could not see out the window. It was too high for her to look out. Right, she said. Is he coming? I think so, yes. He is coming this way. With that, the man entered the room, looked at both parents, and indicated for Michael to sit down as well. Please, he said, pointing towards the chair beside Katie. Have a seat. He watched as Michael said nothing but did as he was asked. My name is Dr. Franklin. I am the consultant for neurology here at the hospital. Our son, the little lady said. What has happened to him? Where is he? From what we gathered, David was involved in a collision with the transit fan in Tamara Way. Now he has sustained profoundly serious injuries, some of which have required us to operate immediately. That is where he is now, in theatre. What injuries? Michael asked. Well, there is a blood clot on his brain which had to be acted on immediately. He has numerous fractures to the skull and other parts of the body, and one of his ribs has pierced one of his lungs. We may also have to amputate one of his legs, which is severely broken and may not be able to be pinned like the others, which means we may not be able to save it. The doctor grabbed Katie's hand as he noticed her eyes filling with tears. He really is in a bad way, Mrs Bishop. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. He looked up at Michael who put his hand on his wife's shoulders oh no my god she said as she started to wipe her tears with her handkerchief not my boy the doctor looked grimly at michael and nodded slightly we will do our best believe me but it's going to be a long process now let me go and find out if there's any more on the operation and then perhaps we can arrange for you to see him michael tightened his armor and katie culling her head into his he'll be fine i'm sure he said he is in the right place many days had gone Michael had to literally drag Katie home and away from David's bedside. He had come out of the theatre, they had managed to remove the blood clot in the brain and save his leg from amputation. Dr Franklin had told the parents that it was up to David now, and with the help of the medical staff, he was hoping their son would make progress. But it would be slow. They both had thanked the medical staff for their expertise. But it was early days. David was on a life support machine and still in a coma. Vicky and Rachel took it in turns looking after their little brother, and the neighbourhood had all rallied around to give support. The next door neighbour, Mrs Beasley, who was normally quite a stern, unhappy old woman, proved to be one of Katie's biggest shoulders to cry on. Family always told Michael and Katie what they wanted to hear, that everything was going to be okay, and that he was in the right place. Mrs Beasley told it how it was, plain, blunt and realistic, while still holding some sympathy for the boy. But Katie was thankful for that, before this, her and Mrs. Beasley had only managed a courteous greeting if they saw each other over the back garden fence, but things changed. The incident had reached the local newspaper, the West Morning News. The journalists had picked up that it was not an accident. David had been hit by a van, driven by a man from Settle, who had been drinking alcohol for most of his lunchtime and who, police had said, was not fit enough to walk, let alone drive a vehicle. He had shown some guilt in the police interview, he even admitted to dozing off under the effects of the alcohol until he heard a smashing sound, seen something hit and crack his windscreen, and felt a bump as though he had run over an animal of some kind. It wasn't an animal, it was David. He had hit him at approaching 40 miles an hour, along a lonely stretch of road. His head had hit and cracked the windscreen, and then his body had got under the van, with his crushed leg and under the driver's side wheels. He had then been dragged along underneath the van for some 50 yards, until the driver, Tony Edwards, obtained some sense to stop, stagger out of the van and look for what or who he had hit. Sergeant Mercer and another police officer sat opposite Katie and Michael on the sofa in the Bishop's sitting room, with the senior police officer holding the gutter press in his hand. I'm sorry about this. As you can understand, the press normally exaggerates to sell newspapers. He put the newspaper down in the coffee table in front of him. Unfortunately, following our investigations, I'm afraid to say they appear to be spot on this time. You mean the guy was actually drunk and driving the van that hit my boy? Michael asked angrily. Yes, he failed the breath test and was three times over the limit. He admitted drinking for most of the early afternoon in the interview. He'd been bailed to return to West Park Police Station in a few weeks' time. Well, I hope they lock him up and throw away the key, Michael snapped. Both hands raised at the back of his head. He grimaced and then his eyes started filling with tears. But tears of anger, as though he was ready to hit someone in the boxing ring. What sort of person? What sort of man? Mm. Uh. Darling, sit down please, Katie said calmly. We need to stay strong for David. God, I am so bloody angry. I want to put my hands around his throat right now. My boy suffers and he is out probably acting as though nothing has happened. Michael shook his head in desperation. Sergeant Mercer got up and placed his arm around Michael to help calm him down. Michael, your wife is right. This is not doing the situation any good. Or David. You must think of your son. Let us deal with the culprit. Believe me, he will not get off lightly. He led Michael to his normal waiting, Saturday afternoon chair. Michael appeared to be calming down from his short, angry outburst. Understandable, Mercer thought to himself. He had seen it before. And this would not be the first or the last time. What time do we have to go, dear? Michael said, face and hands and not wanting to visibly show his emotions. Kitty looked at her watch. As soon as my brother gets here to look after Stephen, whilst the girls are at school, Police Constable King, new to this sort of situation, as he had only recently joined and was still being mentored by Sergeant Mercer, began to feel uncomfortable with the escalating situation. How are your other children taking the news? Katie looked at Michael and realised he did not want to answer, or speak, due to his hidden tears. They're okay, she replied. Thank you for asking. The girls are that little bit older, so they are just worried. Stephen is just three years old. I know you think he understands. He just thinks David is at the hospital because he's fallen off his bike and grazed his knee. She smiled slightly at the thought. Stephen thinks the doctor is going to put a plaster on his knee. Then she remembered when Auntie V's husband had died not long ago. Stephen loved him because he played with his cars with him. They had to sit Stephen down and tell him that Uncle George was in heaven with the angels. Stephen, in all his childhood innocence, had replied. What time is he coming back? They had all laughed at him. But suddenly the thought changed. What if Stephen were to lose two important people in his life? What if David did not make it through? Kids make you smile, don't they? Innocent until they become teenagers, Sergeant Mercer commented, with a small smile across his face. Do you have children, Sergeant? Michael asked sorrowfully, trying to calm himself down. Sergeant Mercer realised that he wasn't supposed to talk about his private life. But under the circumstances, it would be rude not to answer. Yes, two boys, and yes, I worry about them every day. Just like you must worry about yours. Well, I really hope that you never have to go through something like this, Michael replied. I really don't. that you enjoyed our latest horror of tale. If you want to keep up to date with future episodes then subscribe to our YouTube channel and like or follow our social media pages. You can also give the channel support by visiting our merchandise store and picking up some of our items. Please also take a moment to support our contributing artists who very kindly lend their talents to the show. Check out the links in the description on how you can do this. Well, that just leaves me to say. Until next time my friends, keep it creepy, keep it. Horrific.